forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and easily sunburned. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bi-con, bisexual, icon, wink, and I straighten my hair today. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Is it is it too much to ask for like a, a boyfriend update from you? From me? Yeah, like how's it going? It's going well. We're going to New York at the beginning of August together to hang with my fam. Okay. Play some tennis. Okay. I get to see my nieces who I haven't seen in months. Um, so, I feel incredibly uncomfortable talking about it. Why? I want. I. I think the people are rooting for you. Thank you. <laughs> and I think they like want to know that you're like happy, that you're okay, that like because you're like a success story of moving on. You know what I mean? You're like an icon. Yeah, I'm. Oh, okay. I don't. I don't mean. Yeah, I'm like. I just. I am definitely moving on. You know. I think that I objectively feel like it is weird that it happened as quickly as it happened. You know, but I also want to say it's not like it's been just like smooth sailing. It's a very strange thing to fall in love with somebody while you're falling out of love with somebody else. Right. But I think I used to have this idea that you had to be completely over something. And I don't, I no longer think that. I think you just have to be able to communicate with your new and current partner about what you're going through. Because I think it's a lot if you have to feel like you have to act like you're completely over it. Mm -hmm. But I've never had to do that with John. And that's made it a lot easier. He's understanding. Oh, yeah. Like, I talked to him about all of it and, like, what should have been my wedding date is is approaching and, like, that's a whole thing and, you know, something we talk about. And, like, my friend Leah was like, we should go axe throwing. And I was like, yeah, we should go axe throwing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, axe throwing. I've never done that, but that seems like a great idea. Yeah, right. So I'm definitely going to do something on that day with, like, my friends and him and, like, you know, mm-hmm. like, I, I don't need to pretend like that thing isn't painful and like hard despite being in like a really happy healthy relationship now right right I'm learning a lot about many things being true at once yeah you know I think probably as a therapist which you're starting to be you'll be able to be more like empathetic and relatable to people I think or you'll be able to understand like the duality of two things being true better than maybe most therapists I mean who knows I also who knows if I'll ever even be a therapist but you know, I, I definitely think that I used to have like very rigid ideas of like how to get over things and rigid ideas of like what was the right timeline for stuff. And now I'm just like, who cares? Like if I, <laughs> if I'm happy and if this is something that brings me joy and that like is healthy for both of us, mm-hmm. then like the objective timeline doesn't really matter. Time means almost nothing. If anything at all. We're all dying. Like time doesn't matter. <laughs> Time doesn't matter. And like you just – like I always say, you just have to – what are you supposed to do? Just stop? You're just supposed to stop? Time keeps going. It's not that like, oh, I I got over it and then I just got over it. Like I'm still not over it. Like that's the thing is like there's stuff that like you just – it's going to, you know, take forever to process or a really long time to process. But I don't think that that means you necessarily have to like hold up your entire life. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. Time keeps going. Yeah, it's a very weird thing to both feel very unlucky and very lucky at the same time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> but, you know, I just got – I think – I mean, this is the final tough day to get through. It will get through what was supposed to be the wedding day, and then it will sort of be like – and now this is – there's nothing else in terms of, like, dates really that I can, mm-hmm. like, 
I can move past it. It's been a it's been a wild time. <laughs> this is a very helpful and and succinct opening to the show just between us, which is a variety <laughs> show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. And I'm glad to talk about relationships. I did want to check in, give the audience a chance to check in about you, and also we're going to be talking about romance a bit with our guests. I'm so so excited. I'm so excited. I'm such a huge fan of of these people and this couple. And I love, I was a fan of the one and then it just led to me being a huge fan of the other. Um, so we're going to be talking to Bendela Creme, drag queen, performer, producer, drag race fame, and then Ben's partner, Gus Lanza, who is a producer as well. And I just, I love them together. And we're going to talk about like working together as partners in romance and also in business. And then later, we're going to be discussing politicized language. So kind of all over the map. I guess the topics isn't romantic. Well, it depends what kind of language you're using (laughs) and what your politics are. (laughs) But first, we're going to answer a listener's question. So hit it. International question. International question. International question. And New England. Pronoun she, her. I like both the specificity and the vagueness of New England. (laughs) That's multiple states, but we don't know which one. Maybe she's from all of them. I don't know. I'm going to guess Maine, but that's just a guess. Yeah, we, we truly don't know. Okay, so TLDR. How do I find a therapist who will push me? Ooh, Hi, guys. Thank you for the podcast. I grew up watching you guys on YouTube, and the podcast has helped me through some tough times. I have a question I need some advice on. I saw the same therapist from seventh grade up to freshman year of college when I started struggling with drug addiction and decided it was time to move on to someone new. Unfortunately, the new therapist I started seeing hasn't helped. She lets me do what I've always done in therapy, ramble about my dad's movie blog for 45 minutes instead of talking about my problems. Okay, now now we've narrowed you down. You're Anne from New England and your dad has a movie blog. We'll be able to find you. It was so hard for me to get through that sentence. As someone with a dad who also blogs, I get it. I just like how much content is there for that many therapy sessions exclusively about the dad's <laughs> movie blog. A parent's online presence is traumatizing. Um, wow, incredible. I would love if it was like, I, I guess, I don't know if any of them are alive, but like it was like Robert Ebert was her dad or whatever. <laughs> First of all, it's Roger Ebert. Whatever. And you, you get what Robert I Ebert. You and under- as if he was alive. You understand like, the joke. You understand what I was going Robert for. Robert Ebert probably is alive. <laughs> and also Anne's father. Okay. <laughs> Whew, back to this email. <laughs> what is the movie blog? I have to know. You're getting sidetracked. Is he being paid to review the movie? <laughs> no, you know he's not. You know he isn't. <laughs> And said, I know therapy is good for me, but I have a lot of trouble opening up and talking about what's bugging me without being prompted. It's hard to find a therapist who will actually tell me what to talk about, ask me tough questions, and help me take steps to fix my issues. Mm. I feel like every therapist just sees me as an 18-year-old girl doing the whole, I'm going to complain about schoolwork and my coworkers because I have no real problems. I wish they would actually hear me when I tell them I have things I need to fix and I can't just bring them up. Sorry for the long email. I guess my question is, how do I find a therapist who will push me? Is there a certain type of therapy that might work better? What can I do to be the best therapy client I can and make the most beneficial strides? Thank you. Okay. 
So people have different ideas of what they want in therapy. Some people want to just talk and some people want to be pushed. And that's like two completely different modalities, right? It's a little more complicated than that. But the thing I think is a huge misconception about therapy is that it is your therapist's job to drive the therapy. Mm. And that's not true. Mm. It is your job. You're in a collaboration with this person. Mm. So it is not like going to a doctor who's like, okay, I'm going to do all of these things that you are not capable of doing. And this is my job. And I'm in charge of all of these. I'm in charge of figuring out the tests. I'm in charge of prescribing the medication. I'm in charge. Like, that's not what therapy is. Therapy is a true collaboration. And the question is, how do I find the right therapist for me? It's it's more, how do I be a, a more proactive client? Oh, okay. Okay. And so honestly, sharing something like this email with your therapist is the first step. Or just saying, I used to be addicted to drugs. <laughs> Let's talk about it. But I'm, I'm just saying, like, even saying to your therapist, either in session or if that is really difficult for you via email or text mm-hmm. or something, saying, historically in therapy, I don't, I am passive. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. I want to push myself. I know that I have resistance to pushing myself. And I would love to be held more accountable. I would love to explore things more fully. But you cannot put that that on your therapist. Like, it is you that needs to be motivated to do that. And obviously, in an ideal world, you would find a therapist who would sense that and maybe be Dive more deeper, be more directive with you and push back a little bit more. And so it's very possible that this therapist that you have is just not a match, but also the onus is not on the therapist. It's on you. Mm-hmm. I used to not bring stuff up that was super necessary. I mean, I've been with my therapist for like eight years and I'm just now telling her some stuff that i I didn't ever want to speak about because I found it mortifying or like I didn't want to tell because it's embarrassing. Even if they're a therapist, it's like you have to build up trust with them. Like it's embarrassing to talk about certain things. There's a lot of stuff that I had to like really get strong in myself. I realized that you get out of it what you put in. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, I think it's complex. And I think on the one hand, like some people are going to sit down and going to say everything all at once and that's easy for them. But Mm -hmm. if you're somebody where that's not that, like to expect that like by session three, your therapist shouldn't be exploring your deepest trauma. Like that's like you said, like it's unrealistic and it's going to take time to build up trust and to get that relationship. But I also think that like in those early sessions, like a therapist should be exploring that stuff like you know to me it's a little strange that like maybe that's never even been asked in your therapy session until now how is your relationship with your mom was high school bad like you know I don't know I I think Allison's absolutely right about showing this email to them and like saying that like I don't know what stuck out to me was the insecurity of oh my therapist just thinks I'm shallow my therapist just thinks that I'm like some girl who like doesn't have any problems outside of schoolwork and friends and coworkers, which by the way, are real problems. Those are real problems. So you shouldn't be like talking down to yourself or being like, there's almost like an air of internalized misogyny of like, I'm just some vapid girl. Like I don't have any real problems, but also like she can't know that and you can't be projecting what she thinks of you onto you unless you give her all the information. Tell her you used to be a drug addict. Like, tell her that, like, you don't want to say, like, if I start talking about my dad's movie blog, stop me. Cut me off. Be like, let's start at the beginning. 
But sometimes clients will say things like, like, I want to be pushed. And then when the therapist does push them, there's a lot of resistance. So what you need to do is I would tell your therapist what you want to work on, that you want to be more honest, that you want to address these real issues. And then if they start to push you and you feel resistance, it's now your job to work through that resistance. Mm -hmm. And it's your job to, in those moments of incredible discomfort, to still sit with it and to not divert back to the movie blog. But also some sessions, some weeks, that's going to happen. You know, Mm -hmm. like this is probably a longer term relationship. I think there could be something to be said about like if you've already in your mind made up this decision that this therapist is unhelpful to you, like maybe it makes sense to start anew with someone else and from the get-go tell them these things that you want. Mm -hmm. I don't want to like prescribe a certain modality because I don't know enough about what you want to work on and what works for you. But I think that really at the top being like, I want someone that is going to push me. I want, I want to be called on, on when I, yeah. And like, and And when I'm avoiding, you can't say that it's all on them because it's just not how it works. Mm -hmm. Mal and I are in couples therapy now. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. And at, at first, the first two sessions, I didn't, I didn't like her. And she was five minutes late to our second session. And I was like, the whole time was like, I'm gonna fire her. Like I'm this is unprofessional. And I was like, I wish I don't think you should fire her the minute she pops up on zoom. Why don't we give it some time or whatever. And then like the last session that we had was was actually really good. And I think like, it's what we're putting into it. It's what we're telling. Like if we just sat down and we were like, everything's fine. Or like, sometimes it's like, we really need to get into it. And then some days it's just like, how can Mal better support me with my family? And it's not about anything like, oh, we're about to break up or something. Like some sometimes therapy, the little things that you're dismissing, like, oh, my schoolwork, my coworkers, my friends or whatever. Sometimes that's what the session's about. And that's like something that you need to get off your chest. And that's valid stress. And if you yourself are like, I think this is representative of like a larger problem that I have with stress. So let's get into that. Then you can ask for that. Yeah. And and again, like if this is something you struggle with, you have to give yourself time to form this alliance with the therapist. Write it down. Why don't you, before you go in, write down what you want to say and then just hand her the paper. That's another really great tool is to like, if you come in with an agenda and you share your agenda with your therapist, Mm -hmm. that's a great technique. And to say, you know, this is what I want to focus on. And then having somebody where if you then start talking about your dad's movie blog, they say, but this isn't what you wanted to focus on. This isn't on the agenda. But you have to give them the agenda. You know, you Mm -hmm. can't assume that they'll figure the agenda out on their Mm -hmm. own. Yeah. If your therapist is pushing back on stuff and you don't necessarily agree, you don't have to agree. You can be like, well, I don't know. My therapist has a lot more empathy for a member of my family than I do. And we go back and forth on it. And I think that that's healthy because she's giving me another perspective. But I don't that doesn't mean you have to be like, ah, yes, this is the perfect perspective. It's okay to like go back and forth a little bit. Can I ask why you guys decided to go to couples therapy? The therapy is just kind of like maintenance and communicating and talking to each other. And like at first Mal was like after every session, they would be like, 
oh, this, we're going to break up. Like, look at all our problems in therapy. Like, and I was like, no, no, baby, we have to like bring those up at first. Like we can't just sit in therapy and go, and then she goes, why are you here? And then we go, we're a perfect couple with no problems. <laughs> like you have to talk about the problems in therapy. And then on the day to day of being together, I love you so much. We're, you know, like, th- thank you for getting the food. Thank you for doing whatever. But like in therapy is where you put all of that. Now, the last session we had, It was very much like Mal is very helpful with me and my family. Mal is very like attentive. And then Mal was like, how can I be better at that? So it's not like every session is like us hashing out this like Mm -hmm. thing. But, you know, they had to realize that like after every session, we're not breaking up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, My new therapist, you know, I was talking about fears about, you know, future engagement future marriage stuff and like she was like you know I think I think when you get engaged again if you do like you should do premarital counseling of course and I was like absolutely I will uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh of course I guess they felt like they were like oh my god we have so many problems but it's because you list them out <laughs> for the person and then I was like we're fine I was like are you embezzling money from me Mal's like no I was like are somebody having an affair Mal's like no I was like do I have like a secret hitman business? Mel's like, no. I'm like, then I think we're fine. And then so that's interesting, right? Because you're going into therapy thinking, oh, my problems aren't that bad, but I still want to go to therapy. And then we have the listener, Anna, being like, I have I, my problems are so bad and they're not being addressed mm-hmm. in therapy. You know, so like there's so many different ways to go into therapy. There's so many different mindsets to go into therapy. But I think that like even just the self-awareness that you have that like that you aren't being the best client that you can be, that you aren't being as motivated in both in session and out of session, right? Because that's another thing that we don't talk about enough is that like, it's not like this one hour a week is going to fix you. It is what you are learning in in that one hour a week, what you're uncovering in that one hour a week, and then how you apply it to the rest of your life. And that's something you're doing on your own. Your therapist Mm -hmm. isn't with you the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. I agree. I hope this was helpful. (laughs) I hope this was helpful. If you want to submit your international question, go to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Stick around after the break. We'll be asking some tough questions of Ben de la Creme and Gus Lanza. Turtles All the Way Down is the acclaimed number one bestseller by John Green, author of The Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns. Turtles All the Way Down is now streaming on Max. NPR named the novel a, quote, sometimes heartbreaking, always illuminating glimpse into how it feels to live with mental illness. Aza Holmes never intended to pursue the disappearance of fugitive billionaire Russell Pickett, but there's a $100,000 reward at stake and her best and most fearless friend Daisy is eager to investigate. So together, they navigate the short distance and broad divides that separate them from Pickett's son, Davis. Aza is trying. She's trying to be a good daughter, a good friend, a good student, and maybe even a good detective, while also living with the ever-tightening spiral of her own thoughts. Turtles All the Way Down is a brilliant novel about love, resilience, and the power of lifelong friendship. As someone with OCD, it is so wonderful to see OCD represented in an incredible book. I think it is so important that we talk about mental illness, both in our own lives and through narrative. Buy your copy of Turtles All the Way Down in stores today and catch the movie streaming on Max. Hi everyone, Allison here. 
Anyone who knows me well knows that I love to read. I am always looking for new books, and that is why I am so excited that this episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. Book of the Month's mission is to help readers discover new books they love and to promote the work of emerging authors. It was so fun for me to get to pick which book I wanted to read this month and have it shipped right to my door. Book of the Month makes it easy to decide which book to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles. They pick some of the best new books for you to choose from. All the books are good, so you can't go wrong. Every aspect of the Book of the Month experience is designed to be fun and special for readers. They have a highly anticipated release at the beginning of each month. Books are delivered in this really adorable bright blue box, and there's a fun app to help you pick your book and track your reading process. They also offer great values on new release hardcover fiction. It's much cheaper than other options, shipping is always free, and with a loyalty program, you get rewards and even lower prices the longer you stay as a member. My first book from Book of the Month was The Husbands by Holly Gramazio. I am tearing through this book. It is so fun. It's basically about this woman who one day comes home and there's a husband in her apartment and she's like, where did you come from? And then she figures out that every time her new husband goes into the attic, a new husband comes out and she's she's like shuffling through all these different husbands from the attic trying to figure out which one is the best. It is right up my alley and I love it so much. So if you want to take part in Book of the Month and have a brand new book shipped right to your door every single month, go to bookofthemonth.com and get your first book for $5 with code PEDALS. That's $5 off with code PEDALS. I cannot recommend this enough. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week on the show, our guests are Bendela Krem, a writer, director, drag queen, producer, performer, and also a collaborator with their partner, Gus Lanza, who is also a producer who produced the Jinx and Dela holiday special. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Oh, nice to meet you. Yeah, you do. We normally have one guest, but we wanted to have both of you on because we kind of wanted to talk about what it looks like to be in a personal partnership and a professional partnership. <laughs> ben, can you tell us what your job is? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's the things you listed. You know, it's um, I primarily am known as a drag persona. That's my gig and has been for 18 years. But within that, like under the umbrella of that, I write my own work. I direct uh, shows, both my solo shows and larger cast shows as well as now film. And I also produce that work. I've been a producer, again, like maybe like 16 years of my own, my own work, but as it's gotten bigger and as, uh, you know, Gus and I have been together for six years now. And so the business has become the family business and the thing has grown. So um, yeah, that's the long meandering version of me trying to explain the path of my job. And then Gus, what would you say your job is? Oh, also a very strange, multi-hyphenate, meandering, <laughs> uh, as you do when you're freelance and you kind of are self-employed, you kind of, you kind of do everything. Yeah. So, I mean, do you want like the history of how 
I got into producing in general or it, as it relates to Ben. You didn't know what you were getting into with this question. It's like asking, how are you after COVID? <laughs> yeah, I guess is. what I'm wondering is at what point did you decide that you guys were going to work together professionally? Yeah. So that's kind of like ties into like what I do. So I originally, you know, worked in the service industry, managing restaurants. I was a barista for 10 years, like waited tables, all of the above. When Ben and I started dating, you know, he had already been performing for a very long time, you know, was producing his own work and, you know, directing other people's, you know, work and things. I had zero interest in working in entertainment or working in the dragosphere, mm -hmm. as it were, zero interest. And <laughs> wow, I love you. Um, <laughs> but I will say, you know, when we first started dating, Ben, you know, he was on the road a lot very, you know, it gets lonely. It's exhausting. You don't, you're not in one place long enough to make friends to have like somebody to go to dinner with, you know, it gets kind of lonely. So, you know, when we first started dating, Ben really was like, why don't you come on this gig with me? Why don't you do that? And I always said, no, I was like, no, that's your thing. We should keep this separate. Mm -hmm. And secretly it's because I thought I would just like hate it. You know, <laughs> you found like a boyfriend who was like, I don't even like drag. <laughs> well, which honestly, huge incentive <laughs> right? like that was like many bonus points yeah I mean really I was not like I admittedly was not a big I didn't know a lot about the history of drag you thought we were all misogynist and I thought drag was all gynophobic misogynistic like off I thought it was awful because the <laughs> drag that I had seen I was like these people are so offensive. Like they're just yeah. making jokes about how vaginas smell like fish. And right. like, how is this entertaining? Like who are all these like misogynists? You know, like that was my experience of drag. Very limited. I had very, very limited knowledge of what drag is or could be or the history of drag mm -hmm. or, you know, so I had a very negative opinion of it when we first started dating and admittedly didn't know I knew vaguely who he was. We had a lot of friends in common. I didn't know what it was that Ben did and like how his drag was so different from my experience of it. Did you eventually start going and then you were like, oh, this is actually not awful? I had. Uh, so basically, I never saw Gus. So finally, the two of us like started going on the road together. Yes. But it was like a couple years in and I'm glad it was because we'd already established a non-work relationship, which I think makes our work relationship a lot stronger. Yeah, we actually. So funny story. I actually never went on a gig with you until after you filmed All Stars. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So the first gig I ever went on with Ben was he had been locked away for two months filming All Stars. Literally, he got out of Drag Race jail. The next day, we flew to London to do Drag World UK to do Drag World or whatever. Yeah. And that was the first time we went on a trip together. And I actually really enjoyed it. I like really found that I was like good at it, like the logistics of it sort of like helping, assisting him, kind of doing like some crowd control, like that kind of stuff, like all the organizing, the logistics. I was like strangely good at it. And I also like weirdly really enjoyed it. And so that was actually kind of like the beginning of that working relationship. And it started out, I would just be like on the road, like just assisting him. And then I started like taking on more projects around the house, like just getting like his business stuff in order and then physically organizing all of his drag and like having it be more easily accessible for him and then I we I may or may not have lived in just like a pit of clothing like a <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese ball pit made of dirty laundry I mean he said it not me so 
I was going to ask, Ben, did you start to realize like, oh, I actually needed all these things? I actually was as the performer. I like was letting this sort of side of it go. Well, I I had had assistants for many years, you know, so it's not that I didn't have people kind of like, you know, I mean, I think part of being an artist is admitting the things that you're not great at. So you can focus on the things you are great at and then, you know, enlisting the right people to <laughs> Uh, to help. But so yeah, I'd had assistance for a long time. But it was like when Gus kind of stepped in and we sort of decided like, okay, we're like building a life together. And this is part of that. Once Gus stepped into the role, things really started to like blossom and heighten and it really allowed the whole thing to grow way beyond. And I think that's because of like the way that he personally connects and cares about what I do and for me and, and we're building a future together. So Mm -hmm. like both of us are more incentivized. Yeah, I mean, it's that, but it is the thing, too, where it's, like, you always had assistants who were great with you, like, on the road with, like, physically being in a venue with you, but you didn't really have somebody who had, like, a business sense. He's also better at everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's, like, we're, we're good at the things that the other one's not good at. Like, don't ever put me in a dress and stick me on stage. Like, Mm mm-hmm there's no way I could do that. You know, it's like, we have very different strengths, but together the whole makes it, makes it work, you know? Right. Um, and you would always had assistants that were good with like technically getting you to the venues, helping you put clothes on. Yeah. I hope they're not listening. <laughs> they don't listen to this show. Yeah. Like they're wonderful people, but you didn't really have a somebody that was really like focusing on the business end mm-hmm. of things for you. And like taking that off your plate, honestly, so that you could focus on other things that were more important and that you're more passionate about. And like, I like always hated math in school. I never took a business class. Like I never thought I would like be into being like a business person, but I'm like really weirdly into it. It's like my identity. (laughs) I'm like a business person now. When did that shift happen? Like when did you start to like take on more tasks than maybe you initially thought you were going to? Well, you know, we've all had those teachers where you're like, oh my God, why do I have to do geometry? Oh my God, what are these like word problems I have to do? I'm never going to use this shit. We've all had those teachers where you're like, oh yeah, I roll, like I'll Mm -hmm. never use algebra ever. So it was basically like, that was kind of me. And then it wasn't until it was like applied to something I cared about that all of those skills kind of came flooding back. And I was like, oh, I'm putting those pieces together from like sixth grade math. Like... (laughs) Oh, like this is how you make a budget and this is why you need one. And it was like really sort of like my like years of schooling just all came flooding back. And I was like, all the pieces are clicking and I can use the skills I learned from this class in this way. And so that was kind of fun. Like just it kind of all started like building on top of each other. Like and I was like, oh, I'm actually like kind of good at this stuff and I don't (laughs) hate it. But, you know, balancing a budget's kind of fun. Ben, were there people that were like, do not let your boyfriend work for you. Do not work together as an artist with your partner. Like this is such a bad idea. Not on purpose. (laughs) I witnessed many couples dive straight into working together. And I said, I don't want what's happening here. You know, so nobody warned me against it except with with their own actions. And it's not to say that there aren't, I don't also know success stories, but it's like there are, you know, I've witnessed the the ways that that can go south. And so I think both of us at the beginning were very much like, this is not 
this should not be the foundational building blocks of our relationship, you know? Which I think we did good waiting yeah. before mixing work with any of that. Yeah. Speaking to the drag, our sort of, our immediate uh, friends who have also like done, like gone through Drag Race and things like that. There is a lot of drag queens, specifically the queens that have gone through Drag Race, who then end up working with their partners. Mm -hmm. That is, and I think because it's a level of trust. I think that that is also what boils down to like that as a person you can trust you're you have similar goals you're working together for the household so you know like Latrice works with her husband mm -hmm. I think Kasha Davis works with her husband like there's a lot of queens that work with their husbands and partners and we also have like a secret Facebook group um, <laughs> where we may or may not share unflattering photos of the ladies and <laughs> But it's also great because we connect on when we're on the road, if there's a promoter we should look out for, if there is an opportunity to do something really cool with the venue or, you know, we share information, we like support each other because it is kind of like a weird life. Mm -hmm. But I do think that's, that's also why you see the Queens with their partners a lot, because I do think it is such a unique, it's like business, but it's also very personal. I mean, drag is sort of inherently kind of falls somewhere between like an art form of business and an identity. And so I think that is also why your entire personal life is kind of like is is partially devoted to that. And so you become a commodity, which is yeah, but it's also like, like weird, you know, like I it's it's hard to figure out how to express exactly. But drag is like drag queen is part of my identity. You know, mm -hmm. it's personal to me. It's an expression of my true gender mm -hmm. um, in a way that I think, you know, makes it more important than just just the job or than just, just the a, business. Than you know? just your job. Like it's yeah. your job. It's like, yeah, you would like Ben has often said and, you know, and I fully believe this to be true. Like if, you know, you've been devoted to doing drag way before Drag Race was a thing when you were almost, you say this, you say this a lot, but you know, being a drag queen, certainly in the 80s, 90s, you know, and, and before it was like you were almost guaranteed to like never get a date mm -hmm. and to never make any money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and Ben was like, and you had to love it yeah. enough for that to not to matter, mm -hmm. you know. And for me, if all of the kind of like drag phenomenon came crashing down tomorrow, I would still devote the rest of my life to drag. You yeah. Know? Is it weird that now it's just like an empire? Like, is it weird that now it's just like, you're not just Ben De La Creme, you're the Ben De La Creme empire? The answer, the answer is yes. Um, it's like definitely in terms of the quote unquote Ben De La Creme empire. For me, it's like, I never personally pictured that this would be where things headed. And it is like a combination, like most things of very hard work and extremely dumb luck. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I just happened to live in this era. I happened to have been cast on this show, you know, but I do think the popularity of drag if like expanded beyond just like me and my business, the popularity of drag is constantly shifting what drag is, what mm -hmm. it means, how people perceive it. And that to me is like, I'm always kind of grappling with that as somebody who loves like the scrappy beginnings of drag mm -hmm. where people were like cobbling it together, even though everybody hated us, you know, like. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had any road bumps between the two of you in terms of working together? Like I've, I've been to drag. No, <laughs> no never. <laughs> tell me, tell me. Um, yeah, constantly. Yeah, it's, 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 hard. A, it's a constant negotiation. I mean, we've been together six years. We, as a couple, 
are constantly negotiating our relationship and our needs and our boundaries and like working on communication and being complete buttheads to each other and <laughs> getting into like really dumb fights about how you load the dishwasher or, you know, like, like we're a very typical couple in that regard. And then you do add in the complication of working together. You know, we're always navigating like, you know, when is it appropriate to talk about work? Like, mm-hmm trying to keep work out of seeping into every aspect of our lives. The pandemic made that harder because we literally physically couldn't leave our Mm -hmm. house to go to other spaces to work on our various things we're working on. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that's been a constant challenge and a constant negotiation. I think a lot of couples for the first time during the pandemic who are not in entertainment, who are not working in this uh, industry at all, had to navigate that too, because, you know, they were all working from home. So it Mm -hmm. became this weird, like, oh my God, we live together. We're working together. So I don't think we're unique in that. I do think it's the pandemic heightened a lot of like the areas where we need to really work on separating work and relationship. If that makes sense. Literally, how do you walk out of the bedroom and say good morning instead of launch into production logistics? You know, it's like sometimes when you're like really in the throes of a project, it's like you have to really figure out how you're defining that. And it's, it has to be super intentional. It has to be very intentional. Like these are work hours. This is when we don't do this. Yeah. Let's sit down and have a dinner where there's no phones and we don't mention whatever project we're working on. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's tough. I mean, it's really tough. And we both slip and we both have to like hold each other accountable. It has to be like a conscious like commitment to doing that. I will say I was only working for and with Ben. Mm-hmm. Ben Creme Presents was the only kind of focus that I, I had. And then most recently, Ben really wanted to take some time off. You know, he was like, the film really took it out of him creatively. I mean, it was an exhausting process. Mm-hmm. We're so happy we did it. We love the end result. But it was, you know, artistically, he needed a break. He was like, I just need to like kind of t- turn everything off for a little bit. And I was like, really feeling myself as a producer and was like, <laughs> I'm really like loving this life. And I really have been so bored just staring at the walls. Now is my chance to like meet people in LA and, you know, learn new skills and broaden my connections. And, you know, for the next thing we're ready to produce in the, in the city, that could be very helpful for us. And so I started branching out, really trying for the first time working in other facets of production on television and film. And, you know, and so that's been another area where we've been able to separate work from relationship where now I'm having these experiences that he's not a part of, Mm -hmm. but I can then share, oh, I made a friend on this thing, or this is the thing that happened on set today, you know, and we can talk about the realm of entertainment without it being about Ben's work or our work together. So that's actually been kind of cool in the last few months. Yeah, it's nice to be able to ask, how's your day and not already know the answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yes, yeah. completely. Yeah. Have you felt like you've gotten better at navigating the road bumps and like, is communication the key to all of it? Oh, 100. Yeah, it's really, I mean, you know, yes, I think we've gotten infinitely better at it. I think we yeah. continue to. I think it's like, I mean, we're making it sound like the entire relationship is is nothing but a project, which of course is <laughs> is not true. But I think the reason that it's like important to emphasize that is because I do think that there's a sense that like this is like, yeah, I think it's easy for people to romanticize it. And so I think it's also really important to talk about the fact that sustaining something like this is work and it's maintenance, you know, and that's true of work and it's true of relationships and it's especially true when the two meet. Well, and I think, you know, I think that's important to say. And I think that like 
social media, obviously we all know everything is skewed towards happiness and perfection mm-hmm. on social media. And like, we're obviously not going to post when we're like mad at each other right. and having having a fight we only post when we're like smiling and happy and like have something to celebrate right Mm -hmm. and most people are like that but you know they've done studies like it is a thing where like it depresses people because they think I'm the only one that's fighting with my partner or I'm the only one that's having a tough time with the pandemic and it's like we're here to tell you it was tough (laughs) (laughs) we had to negotiate a lot there were a lot of tears during the pandemic of like what the fuck is happening mostly on my part I'm the crier it's true (laughs) the crier but, you know, it was, you know, we got really real. Like we had to negotiate a lot of stuff during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so not only did we, you know, not only do we live together, work together, but the pandemic was, you know, we moved to L.A. March 1st. Yep. Oh, wow. Yep. We moved in together for the, f- the first time. So we had already <sighs> been together for four years at that point, five years, something like that. Something like that. And we had already been touring together. We've gone on a couple of like international tours. So we've been in like stressful situations where we were together 24 seven nonstop and navigated them pretty well. And it's like, you know, living together is different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's different. And you thought, oh, we'll make friends. We'll have people over. Like that was the plan. That was the plan. I have to say like Gus was super ready to move to LA. I like for a while, I was like girding my loins for like a couple of years. It's like sort of like, oh God, this is going to be a big life shift. It's going to mean a lot of different things. And so it was really me like prepping for this entry to this new city, which then after like, you know, 15 months or whatever of like losing that stamina, I'm like, oh God, the idea of like entering the new city now and making all the new friends now, I'm like, I just want to go to my corner bar and see my, you know, friends of 14 years or whatever. So, but so all that is to say that we had several simultaneous, really intense choices we made that were exciting, big, positive choices that the pandemic really <laughs> put a different spin on. <laughs> did you shoot the Jinx and Dela special like during the pandemic? We did. Yeah, we shot it in Seattle, actually. Yeah. We, went, we, were, we were living here in L.A., but we went back to Seattle to shoot that. So that is that something that you were already thinking of? Or were you like, let's take on this super big movie project right now? <laughs> I will say we don't do anything half-assed. That's one thing that no. we're both that I, you know, that I really love about him is his work ethic and his like commitment to to making the best thing always, regardless of the circumstances. Like I really admire that. But why don't you t- talk about like how we came to the conclusion to make a movie? <laughs> I mean, it was really, you know, it was that thing like everyone who I mean everyone like there was so much uncertainty when is this going to end like do we have jobs anymore I mean specifically in the entertainment business it was like you know I mean the first to shut down and 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 just like not only when will this end but the fear of like what's even on the other side will venues still be open will they all have like shut down will people want to go in a theater ever again you know so there was a lot of fear on that stuff and so we were Basically, as it went on, we were like, well, crap, every tour is getting canceled. Every gig is getting canceled. So what are we going to do to protect ourselves? And so it started as a thing where we were just like, okay, well, you know, this is Jinx and my third year going on tour with our holiday show. The tour has gone international. It's been getting bigger every year. Like we were so excited about this. And now we there is just no guarantee. So it started out as like, 
well, maybe we like do a do a show on stage in an empty theater and like live stream it. It kind of started out with that. And then my like manic type A like crazy brain was like, absolutely not. You know, like live performance is made for live performance. It's like there is no version of a recorded live performance that is not watered down, right? Like Mm -hmm. the form is dependent on the exchange of energy with an audience that's present. And so, so it very quickly became like, okay, well, we're just making this a film, you know, we're Mm going to shoot it like a film, we're going to write it like a film. But that inception happened before Jinx and I even set pen to paper, like in June. June, we were having a conversation in our backyard where I was like, well, it could look maybe like this or like this or like this. And he was like, no. No, no. I was like, let's rent out a theater, just like put in a laugh track, you know? And he was like, no. Yeah, I was going to ask how often like one of you is like, what if we did this? And the other one is like, that's a horrible idea. I feel like I'm like the great instigator for Ben. Like Ben has, I feel like that is like both my strength and, you know, it's a strength, I think. I think so. I was going to say, what's the other side of that? But no, I feel like it served us really well that like Ben has an idea and I'm like, all right, great. I'll get to work and we'll figure it out. And I just like 100% I'm like, let's make this idea happen. And then we start working on it. And I was like, that was abstract. This is hard. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, okay, you set my dreams into motion. I'm like, okay, you want to make a movie? All right, great. Uh, Let me make a few calls. And then like, boom, we were off and running. So Gus also dreams bigger for me than I dare to for myself often. You know what I mean? Like, he is the one who kind of believes I can do huge projects like that, like big undertakings that I probably would be like, this would be fun, but it, but I don't know if I can do it. And then I'd like not do it. You know what I mean? So <laughs> well, when I met him, all he ever talked about was how Drag Race has been this incredible vehicle for growing his audience base. Mm-hmm. It's like a great entry point for get, getting people in the door. Mm-hmm. But the larger conversation around Ben de la Creme was only from his time on Drag Race, Mm -hmm. you know, and he performed really well both times he was on and like obviously two time Snatch Game winner. Oh, yeah. You know, so it is a thing where it's like he he got to show some of his skills, Mm -hmm. but not the writing, not the producing, not like what it is he's truly been honing over all these years. Right. uh, The stage work. And so when I met him, I was like, he was really like lamenting, like, I really just want to do like a national tour of some of my solo stuff. And I've always been like, well, why don't we? Like, why yeah. can't we? Why don't we? You know? So I've been really like pushing, like, let's just figure it out. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just do it. Like, you don't need to wait for someone to give you that opportunity. Let's make that opportunity. And he was already doing that in Seattle. So he did it very well for a number of years, over a decade on his own. So I'm like, let's take that same model that you used in Seattle and let's like pump it up and make it a national and now international scale. And that's what we've been able to do. But sometimes it's nice. Sometimes you need someone else to dream big for you. Sometimes you need someone else to be like, this could be huge. This could be more, you know, because it's scary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and I've always really been you know, and this is, I think, both a strength and can be a detriment, but I've always really just been focused on making the work I want to make and making it the best it could possibly be. But I've never necessarily come at it from an angle of like how to make it a business, how to make it lucrative, how to, you know what I mean? Like that's never been priority. But yeah, exactly what Gus said. What I, what I had lamented was 
you know, the world knows who I am. The world doesn't necessarily know what I do. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Seattle, San Francisco, um, New York, New York Provincetown. Provincetown. These are the places that like really, you know, know what it is when I like create a production. And so, um, so yeah, it was, it really, it, and, and I kind of saw that as like, well, I've hit my ceiling and I feel good here, you know, like, um, and then Gus came in and exploded the ceiling. <laughs> I have to imagine that not all couples would work well together professionally. So what is it about the two of you that you think you, you are able to do it so well? I mean, I think our skills just really complement each other is the first thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of the, it's, it's the thing where it's both hard work and dumb luck. And part of the dumb luck part is finding the person with the complementary skills. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, as a culture tend to value, like you are somehow of more worth or have done something good to earn the right partner there is a lot of dumb luck involved. And I think that's something that needs to be generally entering our cultural conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that is a piece of it. And then, and then the rest of it is. Yeah, I would agree. And I think it's also like Ben has a really incredible work ethic that matches mine. And I, you know, I've been on my own since the age of 15 and like have just worked my ass off at everything to get where I am in life. And it's a thing that is, you know, I really admire in other people. Mm-hmm. I really, really admire that sense of like, just don't give up if you have a, a, it sounds so cheesy, but it's true. Like if you have a dream or you have something you really want to do, just don't give up, you mm-hmm. know, just keep working at it, keep working at it, keep pursuing it, keep, you know, trying your, trying your hand at it. Uh, and Ben never gives up. And, you know, uh, when it's a project he's working on or somebody else's project that he's like helping to, to bring to fruition, like, so I really have, I think, always admired that in him. And, you know, and I do think we both have a similar commitment to open communication, which I think is very key mm-hmm. and working on ourselves as well. And I think that's also key, like owning your own shit and then like being able to talk about that shit with each other um, to not hopefully bring it into the dynamic, I think is like key also. So that's like what allows us to kind of negotiate yeah. our work relationship, you yeah. know? This is so healthy. <laughs> I'm like sitting, I'm like, oh, wow. It's, well, health, think- it's healthy, but it's not without conflict. And that's the important thing I want to emphasize is like- And conflict is healthy. Exactly. Yes. Yes. It's, ex- it's how you deal with it, how you navigate it, you know? And like what we do try to aim for is like being open, being very direct in our communication and always trying to be respectful. So mm-hmm. like, you know, no low blows, no cheap shots, like no name calling. I did call him a butthead the other day, but that was- But it was funny. <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> I called Mal a butthead one time, my partner, and Mal was like, really? Butthead? Like, I haven't been called a butthead since, like, the 90s. And I said, not to your face. (laughs) Well, that's what happened. We were, like, starting to get into some little tiff. I don't even remember what it is. And when he called me a butthead, I just, like, burst out laughing. Right, right. done with that now. (laughs) Yeah. It feels appropriate sometimes. <laughs> like my, I call my brother a butthead because he is still very much a butthead. I also wonder, like, how much it helps that, and you said this at the beginning a bunch, like that you looked at it as as helping your shared household, that you guys that, were the a family. team versus like a potential rivalry of like who's better at this. But like every success one of you has is like a shared success. Yeah. Well, you know, I think we talk a lot about how we're working toward the same goals that are like our shared goals rather than one of our goals, you mm-hmm. know? And I think that it does 
feel, I think it could easily, if things were slightly different, feel like everything is for my benefit or to my end, but I, I don't think that's how we've built it, you know? So it is like, you know, I don't think it's any different than like, we started running a mom and pop convenience store together mm-hmm. or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just like- That's you, next on the list. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, I was going to say, uh, yeah, Gus doesn't even like drag, so- no, 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 no. Hey, hey, hey. No, no take backs. No take backs. Don't spread these vicious rumors about me. I have since meeting Ben, I have been, that has honestly been one of the most incredible things in my life to have been able to experience is like really getting to understand the rich history and getting yeah. to see incredible performers. And I am such a fan and a champion of all forms of drag mm-hmm. now. And I do feel like I have this like front row seat to just incredible talent all the time. Like I'm spoiled with talent, which is great. But Mal, Mal as a trans mask person felt the same way was like drag is going to be, is so like misogynistic and it's going to mm. be so like anti-trans or whatever. And then I forced them to watch. I was like, you should watch drag race. And they were like, this is going to be so transphobic. And then within like two episodes, they were like, well, that runway was subpar and like had all these opinions <laughs> within two seconds was like, yeah. just, and I, and I think it's just because they, they hadn't really seen it. Well, I think it's also important to acknowledge that it can be, yeah. like it, you know, there are certainly examples, right? Like I would never claim that like someone is like entirely wrong for right. having that concern. Um, but I do think that overall that's not what the art form is and Mm -hmm. no art form is any one thing you know but I think for the most part it really is less about the idea of what a quote-unquote woman is Mm -hmm. and it's more of it's it's personal gender expression and my thing is always like you know sometimes I think specifically straight people like straight cis people come away with this thing of like you know I hear I hear straight cis women sometimes uh, like approach me and be like oh my God, like you look so beautiful. Like I, like, I don't look like that. And I'm a woman. And I'm like, so why is the takeaway that like somehow these qualities of like long eyelashes and fake hair is inherent to women? Like, like the takeaway should be that like anyone who spends two hours dressing themselves can look like this and therefore gender (laughs) is fully a construct. Like in that sense, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I am blown away by your partnership and your love for each other. And now I'd like to destroy it by pitting you two against each other in a game show. (laughs) We're ready. We're also very, actually, I am very not competitive. Ben is extremely competitive with game playing. The point is we're all going to lose. We're all going to lose. Okay, great. Perfect. (laughs) I'm comfortable in that position. That feels like Ben doesn't like to lose. That feels like a healthy outlook on things in general. Okay, so this game is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask as many clarifying questions as you want, and then you would tell me what you would do in that situation. And then I get to decide whose answer I like best. (laughs) Okay, Okay, great. Does that sound fair? Because it isn't. (laughs) Perfect. Okay, so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You find out that your partner of 12 years got the opportunity through a work event to meet and sleep with Ricky Martin. (laughs) They figured you wouldn't be mad because you know how much they love Ricky Martin. (laughs) He is their number one celebrity crush. Would you stay with this cheater? Did I know about it beforehand? 
You didn't know that they were going to sleep with Ricky Martin and you didn't even know they were going to meet Ricky Martin, but you knew that they were obsessed with Ricky Martin. But they didn't let me know like, hey, I'm at this event and I won. There was no service. (laughs) And there was no like discussion of like hall passes in the past. No, that was not a thing that had ever come up. Okay, no. So it wasn't like you discussed hall passes, but like Ricky Martin wasn't already on the list. You had no hall passes. No negotiation. And we're very monogamous. Yes, but they love Ricky Martin. <laughs> Did I know about their love of Ricky Martin? Yes, they yes. talk about it all yeah. the time. Okay. okay. Yeah. But did you, he, Gus. I said yes right away. He like jumped in with yes before anybody clarified anything. <laughs> it's Ricky Martin. <laughs> it's Ricky Martin. I had a big poster of him in my locker in fifth grade, which is so gay. Like che- it checks out. Like it's just like. Because he was straight at the time. And I was like, this is a male crush to have. There is nothing gay happening here. One of my first drag performances ever, actually, I used to, when I lived in Chicago, I worked with this drag king troupe called the Chicago Kings, who were amazing. Um, And I was like their one like male-bodied queen or whatever. And so my my first performance with them was this king named Billy who performed She Bangs. And I got (laughs) to be the one who bangs. I was the bang, the whatever. The banger. Yeah. <laughs> so I say yes. Okay, but here's my question: What sort of weird auction is Ricky no, Martin doing? It wasn't doing? an auction. They just met at a work event and then they hit it off and then they slept together. I thought this was a prize that they won at the work event. No, we're not living in a wonderful reality. It's still regular reality. It's like a date auction, but Ricky Martin. It's like a fuck auction. Like Ricky Martin's doing. <laughs> I mean, I like the idea that like six years down the road in our general future, that might be like a thing. That actually feels like a perfectly logical logical progression of like reality TV. <laughs> right. Would right. it be cool if I cheated on you with Ricky Martin? I didn't actually answer the question yet. Oh. Oh yeah, answer it. Well, I'd be cool if you cheated with Ricky Martin, but can I have a caveat? What is it? Depends. I mean, I would stay with you, but I would also want to meet Ricky Martin and maybe also like maybe we could like have like a three-way with him. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, my question was going to be um did you take pictures and can I see them? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think I'd want to see the pictures. I do think that I'd be there like there would definitely be like a few days for me to like have some feelings, mm-hmm. but uh but by the end of it it'd be like yeah, it's Ricky Martin. Well, unfortunately, your partner ends up leaving you to to stalk Ricky Martin for the rest of their lives. Not even be with Ricky Martin, just hide in the bushes outside his house. It went bad. It went. Ricky Martin didn't have a good time. <laughs> oh, I feel bad for him. And then your partner is trying to woo Ricky Martin back until eventually they end up actually horrifically being hit by a bus. <laughs> Why are they? Hit by- what? This I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It always does. Uh, uh. <laughs> Wait, what? What is your star sign, Ben? I'm a Libra. Okay, and what's yours, Gus? Which cancer? Really? But Ben does the crying. Fascinating. Cancer rising. Ah, yeah. got it, got yeah. it, got it. But the Libra, the Libra piece explains why I have to, like, any question you ask, I am going to process heavily before I give you that. <laughs> oh, yeah, making decisions is very, it can be very uh, labor-intensive around this house. Uh-huh. I still reserve the right for the next six years to reconsider my decision about it. We'll email you and be like, in the middle of the night, Ben's had a change of heart. <laughs> yeah, let us know and we'll update the podcast listeners. <laughs> what is the next game? I'm so scared. Okay, our next game is Are You a Terrible Parent? Your child, 13, has been super upset lately because no one is watching their TikToks. 
no. To make them feel better, you secretly create a hundred fake accounts to get them views and help their algorithm. But now you have to watch all of their TikToks 100 times from 100 <laughs> accounts so they don't think they are losing views. Are you a terrible parent? Am I a terrible parent for for doing that or am I a yeah. terrible parent because I am 100% not going to do that? <laughs> no, you in this scenario you are doing this and is that does I, that I'm, make you a terrible parent? I think it does. It like gives the kid a false sense that they're like good at something. <laughs> Yeah, this is like how Gen Z happened. Yeah. Right? We're like, they're good at everything. They should be praised for everything. We're going to get a lot of hate mail. No, yeah. this is more millennials. My generation was told, like, you're good at everything. Spend so much money at college. You're going to get a great job. And it was a lie. So you know what? Let's not make Gen Z have the same mistakes. Or whatever generation exactly. my child is, my child would be like Gen Alpha. Is that what they're called? Gen Alpha? Jeez. Gen Alpha. That's what our producer just said. Anyway, Gen Alpha needs to toughen up. Get a helmet. Life's hard. So you think this is a bad strategy? Bad strategy. I think it's a, I agree with you. It's a bad strategy. Yeah. It's just, it's a bad strategy. And also just like too much work. I won't do that. Also, who the fuck knows how to use TikTok? I cannot figure that app out to save my life. (laughs) Like who has the time for TikTok? Like really? I tried it once and I'm like, I just want to make like a video. How are all these people doing all these intricate like, do you all have TikTok? Like how? I don't get it. I have TikTok. My best videos are just me filming Mal doing things around that is just regular life. Like my best videos are just me filming Mal being a weird person in daily life. And the people seem to enjoy it. Okay, so that's a unanimous answer. I guess we're deciding it's a bad parent. You're a bad parent. Even though eventually the algorithm really works out and they get a million followers and end up supporting the entire family with brand deals. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, would you really want your child to be like an influencer as their main job? I want them to be Jojo Siwa. But Jojo Siwa is a dancer. Like she does have skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We didn't even ask what the kid's posting. it's, It's just impressions. Of Owen Wilson over and over again. Are they good? No. Okay. <laughs> the part impressions of Owen Wilson. Just a 13-year-old doing impressions of Owen Wilson. I feel like, but I feel like if you've raised somebody for 13 years and now all they do is impersonate Owen Wilson, you are already a bad parent before whatever the next step is. That's fair. True. That's very fair. Okay. Our final game. Is this a date? Oh, boy. While at the doctor's office, you strike up a conversation with the person next to you about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They get called in to see the doctor, but turn to tell you that they will wait for you after their appointment so you can finish the conversation. Is this a date? Okay. So it's like, but okay, so what's the scenario? So you get out of the doctor. What's the next step? I need to know what happens next. So you're at the doctor explaining your IBS and how it's affecting your life. And the doctor is giving you a lot of tips and tricks. And then you're in there for an hour with the doctor because it's a lot of diarrhea. And then you leave (laughs) and the person is still waiting in the waiting room for you. And then you sit back down in the waiting room and continue your conversation. What was that person at the doctor for? They also have terrible diarrhea. Oh, it seems like a bonding moment. Yeah, I guess. How long can you guys really sit there and chat without both needing to poop somewhere? Oh, um, you're there for another 40 minutes. After, but like you have to decide while you're in the conversation, is this a date or not? But That's you don't the go, game. You don't go to a second location. No, you, you stay, stay in the waiting room. Um, 
Oh God. Uh, well, all right. Okay. All right. How, like, how deep is the eye contact? Like, is it, is it just like casual mm-hmm. conversation eye contact or, or is it like, as you talk about your poop situation, you're like lost in their Azure eyes? No, you're exclusively talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, right, right. You're not talking <laughs> you about your poop. You just happen to be about, there because of your IBS. But are you looking into each other's yeah. eyes? Um, yes, but at, if one of you kind of has like an impassioned speech or argument that you're making, it's more than you looking into the air and gesticulating. But are you picturing Captain Marvel as you connect with them, or are you like genuinely like are do, do are their they eyes are they hot? Yeah, they're very hot. Oh, do they look like a Marvel character? They are dressed like the Black Widow. <laughs> oh, definitely, one hundred percent a date. <laughs> that person's wearing a jumpsuit. That's not conducive to IBS. No, it's really not. Unless there's like a trap door. Yeah, there's like a, a there's little... a union suit style like two buttons and a flap. Yeah. That's why they went to the doctor because they really have to get under control so they can keep wearing their jumpsuit. Okay, Allison, I think it's a date. I say it's a date. (laughs) It's a date! Oh my God! Yay! You find out on your second date that all they can talk about is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. (laughs) I know some people like that. Wow. Well, so they're not my soulmate? No. Oh, bummer. Sometimes Allison tells you if they're your soulmate. Yeah, but it's often only when you've passed on the opportunity. (laughs) Is there a third date or is that like... No, because you guys get into like a huge argument about Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Yeah. (laughs) This is the thing is like, Allison doesn't even believe in soulmates. There's She's omnipotent for some reason. Like there's no... This is... I've been playing this game for like hundreds of episodes and it's just a wild ride every time. (laughs) I'm enjoying it. It's the only time I get to exert full power. Oh my God. It's thrilling for me. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's a rare opportunity in life. I'm glad you're able to able to have an outlet for that. Thank oh you. <laughs> okay. Where can people find each of you and where can people find out about this upcoming tour? Well, uh, people can find me at uh, Bendelacram across uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. They can find the Jinx and Dale Holiday Special, which is the film that Gus and I uh, created last year on Hulu or anywhere that you purchase your films, Amazon, iTunes, etc. And you can go to jinxanddala.com to buy tickets for the tour that launches in November. And if you're in the UK, US, or Canada, it's entirely entirely likely we're coming to your city. Yay! That's all very true. Um, <laughs> and uh, I can usually be found uh, backstage <laughs> getting uh, and Dela dressed to be on stage. Um, and when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Instagram at Gus Lanza. I think I also have a Twitter that I like never use. You do. That's the same, but <laughs> Gus Lanza three. Uh, not very clever with naming <laughs> myself or my accounts. Um, Wasn't it Koi Daddy at one? Point? It was, but somebody hacked me. <gasps> somebody oh, no. hacked my account, and I can't get it back. So I have a new account. I so don't follow me on Twitter. I just retweet Ben's stuff. That's literally all I do. And I'm I'm producing things around town. I'm working uh, for Outfest right now, producing. Uh, some youth, queer youth short films right now that will be premiering. Amazing. Details to come. So, um, yeah. Oh my God. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is like truly a dream. I'm so happy. It was so fun. fun. Thank you so much for having us. Of course. It's so nice to meet you maybe one day in person. (laughs) 
We got to have a double date. I know. I know. Okay. I'll, I'll message you. What are you doing tonight? Uh, nothing. I have a doctor's appointment. I have terrible IBS and I was wondering if you'd like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I know. Okay. Let me get my black widow suit and I'll, I'll be right there. I'll be right there. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about politicized language. to just between us it's time for topics x x x x x x x baby baby uh so to keep this spicy i thought we would talk about politicized language today oh boy so what specifically oh my god you have notes okay so what did you do you not have notes no i think about this stuff all the time all right so, so what, yeah, what are your thoughts on it then? If you're, okay. if you're all prepared in your head. So I think a lot of it um, is just a complete misunderstanding of the vocabulary. And a lot of it is just like buzzwords that get a lot of clicks and like don't actually mean the thing that like it's easy to come up with like a catchphrase kind of word that like is a scare tactic, but doesn't actually mean <laughs> anything about what it actually is. And people will retweet and click and read and get scared and vote against things that are just like not even what that is. And it all comes down to messaging, which is like so frustrating. Oh, but I don't think that this is like an unintentional thing that is happening. I think it's incredibly Oh, no, it's on purpose. It's on purpose. Yeah, like the conservatives, I think, are masters at this. And they do a lot of testing and like focus groups and they like mm-hmm. figure out what language will make people side with them on issues. And Correct. so like even just like because it, it evokes like emotion. So even just like how more liberals will say undocumented immigrants and then they will use illegal aliens. Correct. Correct. Like those two things make you think of very different things. Or pro-life and anti-abortion. Which like, you know, they'll be like pro-life. Oh, well, I'm pro-life. I love life. But it's like uh, it's actually like anti-abortion, anti-reproductive rights. Like, you know, there's there's wording for things that you're basically branding, you're selling, you're marketing. And people don't realize that they're kind of being brainwashed with it. And so and so like one of the things I was reading about was like, well, we don't even share the same language with the other side. It's that much harder to have conversations because you're already starting on such different ends of the spectrum and you don't need, you're not even using the same terms, mm-hmm. making it even more complicated to like have like discussions where you could potentially like see each other's side or change each other's minds. There's like transphobes will be like, I'm just gender critical. I'm doing gender critical theory. And then people will be like, well, it's trans exclusionary. And then it's like, that's kind I don't want to say their exact same thing, but that's an example of like language being different on both sides. So it's like, you can't even, who who are you talking, who, who's talking about what? <laughs> like, you can't even like begin to have the conversation because people will be like, well, I'm just being gender critical. And it's like, that is a um, very, like you can't, because then it's like, oh, well now you're blocking criticism. You're You're just saying that you can't be criticized. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, you're right. Like the critiques are allowed, but it's like, no, what you're doing is being like my critique is trans people should die. Okay, well, now hold on. Wait, just uh, hold on a second. <laughs> and I think what's really scary is like 
that there's like proof that like the way that you say things changes the way people think about issues. Correct. And so that's where we like get into like this really scary territory, you know, like like I think the estate tax is like a great example. Like the estate tax, if you explain it to somebody, they're like, okay, it's like you pay money when somebody, you know, you're passing along an estate. But then when the Republicans changed it to the death tax, people Mm -hmm. are like, well, I shouldn't be people shouldn't be taxed for dying, Mm -hmm. you know, and it just like completely changes the way that people approach an issue. Or, okay, what about like when you're like anti-vax? versus like pro freedom, right? So they're like, you're like, well, you're anti-vax and they're like, I'm pro personal freedom. Well, it's been, they've been doing a lot of, I think, research about language used and what is the most effective language used to like get people to take this seriously. And actually like Fred Luntz, who's like, was always a, on the conservative side, like, and he like turn, like came up with a bunch of these like Republican terms is now kind of using his powers for good and try to figure out like what kind of language will make people more receptive to vaccinations and more receptive to taking the pandemic seriously. And I guess apparently like this using the term like stay at home order, people respond better to than lockdown. Well, yeah. But like it's so, you know, like the same thing. Right. Like it's just this like interesting thing of like, yes, we are like intellectual beings, but we are also so easily manipulated. (laughs) So easily manipulated. I mean, marketing is behind almost everything. And they really fucked up in calling it the vaccine initiative Operation Warp Speed because it made people think that like that there wasn't any research put into it. So even though like this technology has been being studied for like I think decades, like now people are like, well, they just came up with this yesterday. It's warp speed. I can't trust this. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's like such a huge example of like language just like completely changing people's opinion about something. I think it comes down to messaging. Like I had Elizabeth Warren on Bad With Money, not to brag. And um, she was talking about how a lot of these policies are actually popular with both sides, but it's just a matter of how you ask it. So it'll be like, do you want to pay more taxes than a billionaire? No, both sides, no. Okay, well, what about like a wealth tax? Oh, I don't like that, you know? Or like there were all these things that it actually comes down to all of these policies, progressive policies are actually popular on both sides. But if you paint a progressive policy as socialism, communism, coming from someone like Bernie Sanders, coming from someone like Elizabeth Warren, they're like, no, because they, they the word communism and the word socialism is like so ingrained in American culture as like having to do with the Red Scare and like being this like big evil. But then if you're like, do you want to actually be able to access like healthcare fairly? People are like, yes, I would. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even just how they have weaponize the term socialism but meanwhile oh i'm sorry is that do you like that you have firefighters that's socialism (laughs) (laughs) like do you like a public school socialism i know melissa want to come on in and share your thoughts yeah talk to us talk to us you are all ready you have your microphone (laughs) already i am ready yeah i mean of course i agree with this and i think the one of the ones that gets to me a lot and i might get flagged for this Obama also got flack for this too, but like defund the police. I mm. dislike that term. Mm. Um, and I think because people think that you're just like literally, you know, taking money and just not providing like whatever the police do, who knows what they do, but providing money for 
like taking it away just for no reason, which mm-hmm. it actually means reallocating money. Right. Yes. Yeah, so like reallocate. Because mm-hmm. there are two different things going on. There are activists who believe defund the police, reallocate the resources, you know. And then there there are activists, though, that are get rid of the police. I know. Abolish. And there and that's like goes into that term is that it confuses people and there are different meanings to what mm-hmm. it means. And then also like, like, for example, like the ambulance system, you're talking about firefighters, but like ambulance systems used to be like part of the police force. Mm-hmm. And then it was reallocated. So then it became like, so then that's a separate thing with actual healthcare workers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's the same, like if you're moving the money around, then you get people that are actually trained in what they are going out for. Right. Yeah. It's different. And like prison abolition and police abolishment is different than reallocating the resources. But I was also I was reading this book about, you know, unsolved crimes and why are there so many unsolved rapes and why are there so many unsolved crimes? And the person was making the um, argument that, well, there's not enough funding. Right. But the thing is, is that there's not enough funding in the right places. In the right, right? places, exactly. So they're paying huge salaries. They're paying into unions. They're paying for politicians who, you know, pamphlets and stuff for politicians who want to put more black and brown people in prison. But what they're not doing is uh, helping the rape backlog or doing genetic genealogy to be able to catch like, uh, you know, unsolved murders or and then a lot of that is getting delegated to citizen detectives and citizen private investigators and things like that. Why are these people picking up the slack where that money could it exists, put it to where it can actually be solving crimes, where the the solve on murder rates could go up in this country? It's it's one of the lowest solve rates in all of like Western countries, you know, and it's so low because they just they don't put the resources to it. And then I watched this documentary where like this kid was put away for like 10 years for a crime he didn't commit. And the dad is the one that had to solve it. And it's like, what are the police doing? There's so many podcasts now that are solving cold cases. Exactly. Exactly. And it's like because the money, not defund, but the money, because then everyone gets scared because then this book that was by Billy Jensen that was like, it needs more funding. And it's like, I know it needs more funding, which is why you should reallocate to fund the like huge backlog of just untested DNA in all of these cases, which, by the way, many of the cases are the murders and rapes of black and brown people. Right. I think a problem is, is like, you know, so that language is coming from activists who have limited resources. And then you have the right doing all these focus groups and all of this testing mm-hmm. and like all of like this way of figuring out the exact right thing to call something before, mm-hmm. and then they go at it so hard. And like, so they're controlling their language with all of this, like, evidence behind it mm-hmm. and like studying, you know, and I think it's one of those things where we have to like figure out how to beat them at their own game. <laughs> like mm-hmm. we have to get better at the, the language that we use and like, how do we make it so that we can politicize it for our benefit? Um, because they're not going to stop doing it. Right. Well, we'll solve it here today. Or should we switch into, should we solve cold cases? Oh, should this podcast become a podcast where we solve cold cases? Because it's unbelievable. Like you're, you asked, you said, what do the police do? Yeah. Truly unbelievable because the backlog is so high and they put the money in so many wrong places that nothing gets actually solved. Mm-hmm. And it's like the modern day, like on social media, like people are literally posting like, just did a murder. Catch that person. Right. I don't know. I read, I saw this documentary and I read this book and I got really heated about 
the meaning of you're right, defund the police and and the people who are like li- liberal people who are trying to be a little bit more nuanced about it, but also they're not being nuanced enough because they're like the police need more funding. And I'm like, that's not necessarily right. what you mean. Right. You mean the specialized people that work inside the department need to have those resources. Yes, it needs to be broken down. Like the police is like an overall term and it needs to be broken down to what specific people are doing in those jobs. And then you give money to those specific departments. 100%. <sighs> I could, that's a whole nother conversation. No, really. <laughs> Maybe that'll be a topic coming up. We should. <laughs> um, what do you rate this episode, Melissa? Thank you for asking me first. So of you course. don't steal it. <laughs> uh, let's say 19,332 <laughs> movie review daddies out of three. Wow, that is a high rating. Robert Ebert would be so proud. He would be. I would do anything to get my hands on this dad's movie. <laughs> <laughs> Please email it to us. I know that wasn't the point, but it is the point. I would rate it. Um, Eight out of seven, beautiful, healthy, loving relationships with conflict. Oh, lovely. I love them so much. <laughs> I really love them. Um, and I will rate it 27 out of out of 24 state taxes. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like it too. <laughs> Thank you to Bendela Krem and Gus Lanza for being our guests. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Mont. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Or check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or on our YouTube channel that actually still exists, everyone. <laughs> youtube.com slash show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news and at Gabby Road and at Allison Raskin and at She Is Not Melissa. Bye! Forever Dog